If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. The Shift is also brought to you by Enagic Water Systems, providing crystal clear, ionized, alkaline water straight from your tap, as well as the Freedom Era Network, delivering tools and information to help you build a successful online business. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Thanks for listening. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on June 1st, 2021. I'm happy to announce returning guest Doctor of Philosophy Julianne Romanello is joining me once again to continue our discussion concerning sophistry and technocracy. This time around, rather than a general philosophical conversation about how an essentially baseless climate of opinions determines the expert consensus which drives technocracy, we are going to utilize an example from contemporary academia that perfectly underscores the links to which sophists go to justify their opinions as this epistemological battle continues. A new study published by MIT highlights the almost unbelievable links to which those who accept consensus truth will go in order to justify their conclusions. As you will see, this article entitled, Viral Visualizations, How Coronavirus Skeptics Use Orthodox Data Practices to Promote Unorthodox Science Online, clung desperately to their confirmation bias despite overwhelming evidence that lockdown skeptics presented a highly scientifically literate portion of the population and presented their arguments using state-of-the-art scientific methodologies. Apparently, this group from MIT expected to find anti-lockdown social media groups filled with ignorant racists sharing fake news, and instead discovered highly intelligent individuals crowdsourcing information, double-checking their work for biases, searching for expert opinions, and collating raw data into infographics that illustrated their conclusions. One might expect an institution like MIT to concede that such rational actors should be able to engage in censorship-free public debate, allowing the pandemic response to evolve through a democratic process befitting a free and open society. Instead, lockdown skeptics are accused of weaponizing critical thinking against the hierarchical social model that apparently defines scientific truth. The concern, according to the paper, is that lockdown skeptics promulgate data literacy practices as a way of inculcating heterodox ideology and has become a method of political radicalization. In other words, using the scientific method effectively 
To come to your own conclusions has become an act of rebellion, according to MIT, while blindly following the dictates of the few at the top of a scientific hierarchy is presented as the assumed position of any member of the plebeian class. Frankly, these arguments are reminiscent of those rapidly advocating for feudalism 300 years ago by claiming the divine right of kings, so long as the modern-day king wears a white lab coat. Enjoy this conversation as myself and Julianne dissect this paper in order to display its principal characteristic as an extraordinary example of sophistry at its finest, while discussing the underlying dangers inherent in a philosophy that advocates for the imposition of a social hierarchy over facilitating the use of individual critical thinking skills. You can find out more about Dr. Romanello and her work at www.heartsoverhexagons.com. Our previous interview, as well as the entire article for from MIT will be posted in the show notes below. Find out more about The Shift with Doug McKenty at www.theshiftnow.com, where you can sign up for the newsletter, find hours of free content, or subscribe for full-length audio versions of each episode. Sign up for a premium account at rockfin.com for access to all feature-length videos. You can also find The Shift at McKenty on Twitter, on my personal page on Facebook, at The Shift with Doug McKenty on YouTube, or on the new Canadian social media site, Liberty. I want to thank Dr. Julianne Romanello for coming back to the program, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the 82nd episode of The Shift. I'm joined once again by Dr. Julianne Romanello. I wanted to have her back on. I think you're going to, I hope you like this episode as much as I'm about to, because uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago, I became aware of this paper from MIT. Uh, viral Visualizations, How Coronavirus Skeptics Use Orthodox Data Practices to Promote Unorthodox Science Online. And I started reading this thing, and I basically, I couldn't stop laughing. And I knew that I had to have somebody on the show to talk about this so we can really kind of go through this piece by piece and sort of tear it apart. And Dr. Romanello was the one. Uh, she agreed to come back on. If you will remember, she was on for uh, episode 74, where we talked about sophistry and technocracy, and um, specifically in relation to the philosopher Eric Vogelin and his concept of the climate of ideas. Um, so that I'll, I'll post that episode in the show notes. You can check that one out because this paper is basically an excellent example of sophistry. <laughs> yes. And so um, I'm really happy that Dr. Romanello agreed to come back on the show. And we are going to go through this bit by bit. Basically, uh, a group of people from MIT uh, essentially lurked in Facebook and Twitter groups. And they, they actually, use, we were just talking about it. They actually use the term deep lurking as their, as their tactic. And they came up, they wanted, I think what they expected to find was a bunch of uh, anti-science nut jobs uh, that were just talking a bunch of crazy foolishness. And uh, I, apparently perhaps to their surprise, they discovered that these uh, anti-lockdown activists and anti-mask activists uh, were highly intelligent, highly scientifically literate, uh, capable of analyzing raw data in a highly scientific fashion, and then producing their own visualizations to counter the mainstream visualizations that were positing that uh, coronavirus was super scary, that the lockdowns were safe and effective and not hurting anyone. Um, and so... Uh, then they had to construct a long and convoluted kind of argument 
to try to explain why such intelligent people uh, who were highly scientifically literate and capable of analyzing data at such a high level uh, would come to uh, heterodox conclusions that went against the scientific hierarchy. So uh, to tear this apart with me today is Dr. Romanello. Hi, Julianne. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. This is going to be a blast. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have fun with this one. So what do you think? What were your impressions about this paper uh, when you got into it? Uh, I mean, really, I thought this must have been written by some students who had, you know, had way too much coffee and, right. you know, they're writing in the wee hours of the night and just have to, you know, meet some kind of a deadline uh, because it really is an absurd paper. And I'm so glad that you called it uh, to my attention and, and you know, that we can go through here and try to clear up some of the jargon and some mm. of the tactics that they use really that, um, you know, in order to demonstrate like the problems with their specific claims about anti-maskers and data visualization, but also just to help people, you know, understand what uh, good scholarship should look like and right. and you know objective journalism should look like i mean i know this isn't this is a scholarly paper it's not journalism but i think that there's a lot of overlap uh with you know uh with the current news outlets and they talk in in the paper a lot about the effect of the media and the role of the media in public health so you know, if we can show some of the ways in which this paper really breaks what should be, uh, you know, universal standards for right. scholarly re research, then I think that'll be doing a service to a broader audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we were discussing um, before, we, we couldn't stop talking to each other before we finally hit the record <laughs> button because it was just so interesting to start going through this. Um, but it, to me, to my mind, it's like the level of confirmation bias, I think, that it took because I feel like these guys were clearly expecting to find again like this whole anti-science anti-logic, anti-critical thinking crowd that was just, you know, a bunch of white supremacist hicks. And uh, instead, they were kind of surprised to find uh, just how intelligent uh, the conversations <laughs> were. And, yes. um, and then they had to construct an argument despite, instead of just saying, wow, this is a good argument, maybe we should be having like open public debates about the efficacy of lockdowns. Uh, they had to kind of construct this argument um, that basically says that, you know, these these people probably are white supremacists, although there's no evidence, <laughs> even though they imply it sort of multiple times here, which we can yeah. get into the we can get into some of the quotes. Um, yeah, but uh, and then they must have some kind of deep story about uh, about white supremacy that's shaping their their scientific conclusions, even though uh, their science actually appears to be very well thought out and, and super sound. So, yeah. So anyway, um, I want to start. I think I'm going to say this quote about the weaponization of critical thinking, because this one really stood out to me. Uh, clearly, they're finding people that are very good at thinking critically and they're 
being critical of of the lockdowns and the mask mandates and all of these other authoritarian um, protocols that got laid out as soon as as soon as coronavirus hit the scene. And uh, so then they and and the, and the thing is that they're saying, I guess the point of the paper is that a lot of times, you know, scientists are trying to make these graphic visualizations to convince people to go along. I would call that propaganda, but mm-hmm. they're calling it uh, data vi- visualizations, graphic visualizations, basically, that convince people to go along with the lockdown or, or whatever the government uh, uh, is, you know, is trying to promote. Um, based on the quote-unquote science of the day. And when people aren't getting convinced by these visualizations, then historically they've thought we just need to create better visualizations that basically I think they thought they needed to dumb the the ideas down enough so that they could get the idea across that everybody needs to wear a mask and and we should all enjoy our six-month vacation being locked up in our house just because Dr. Fauci says yeah. Uh, we shouldn't question. Um, and they were so surprised to find that people were actually capable of thinking for themselves about this topic and coming to different conclusions than Dr. Fauci that uh, he says, and this is the quote from the paper, uh, calls from, for increased literacy have often become a form of wrong, wrong-headed solutionism that posits yeah. education as the fix to all media-related problems. Uh, calling for increased media literacy can often backfire. The instruction to question more can lead to a weaponization of critical thinking and increased distrust of media and government institutions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so asking people to think for themselves is a bad idea because they might come to a different conclusion than Dr. Fauci. So they can't go there anymore. Right. And then there their idea overall is this idea and we and you can get into this i'll I'll let you do some talking here in a second i promise um at the very beginning in the introduction they describe it as an epistemological gap that leads pro and anti-mass groups to draw drastically different inferences from similar data and then you and i have had this conversation uh, backstage again about the use of the term epistemology because i think that they use it poorly in this context they're really talking about what's more broadly considered the philosophy of science um but what their argument is is essentially that anti-maskers anti-lockdown activists believe that science should be used as a process that each individual can go through by using their own critical thinking faculties and then making choices for themselves as opposed to the alternative which this paper advocates for which is to simply comply with the dictates of the scientific hierarchy uh and essentially do what you're you're told i i uh I was likening it to the old divine right of kings uh, idea <laughs> during the American Revolution when people said, no, you can't have a democracy because the, the king is just plugged straight into God and everything he says is true. So, uh, so yeah, right. So anyway, do you want to, why don't you talk about the, the definition of epistemology maybe and, and get into your thoughts in terms of how this paper treats the use of that term? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I read that you know, the line that you mentioned and, you know, epistemology is the science of how we know what we know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's looking at empiricism versus rationalism, whether our, whether genuine knowledge comes through 
say, experiences and sense perception or whether it is um, ahistorical and, and, you know, rationally derived before all experience. So th that's, you know, in, in philosophic circles, when you talk about epistemology, those are the kinds of things you wrestle with. Like, what is a, an appropriate method for uh, for finding truth, and how do we uh, how can we be certain that it is truth? So, when in this paper, when they start talking about these different epistemologies, I mean, it's really just uh, it's a sloppy use of the term. Mm -hmm. And you know, you and I went back and forth, and uh, before recording, and and. You know, we talked about how this should be some uh, broader question of the philosophy of science because that gets us to the questions of what is, you know, what is science? What should it be? Like, what is the the goal or objective or telos of of science? Uh, and and that's really what they end up making an argument about. They end up making an argument about the nature of science itself, you know, is, and they're trying to say, well, it is, you know, science consists in the expert opinion. And if you call into question that opinion, then you are, you know, really anti-science. And it's, it's interesting because in this paper, they try <laughs> You, you remember they mentioned how they kind of describe their process of of arriving at the term anti-masker. Right. right. <laughs> the, it's kind of a nice umbrella know, term. Yeah. Yeah, they call it, it's a catch-all that is supposed to, you know, call up the connotations of anyone who really questions the pandemic narrative, anyone who doesn't want to wear a mask or people who want to reopen schools and the economy. And they say, right. we're going to, we chose this term because really it's the term that these populations use, you know, in their own circles. And, you know, they argue that it's better than the biased term, which they will avoid, which is anti-science. Right. You know, so they right. Say, that's what they were generous. looking for, right? You're, I'm sure yeah. that's what they were looking for is to be able to peg them as anti-science, which I, I've always found that when I first started hearing that term, I thought it was so ridiculous because every, yes. I mean, even in the vaccine and the quote unquote anti-vaccine world, they're mm -hmm. constantly quoting peer reviewed studies. And I mean, it's like, you know, this concept that, that I, it, the idea that science is this homogenous belief system that everybody who's a scientist thinks the same way is that to me is the problem. Like there are lots yeah. of different scientists and lots of them think differently. And, and then there's lots of different peer reviewed papers that say different things. And science is always evolving. I mean, this is the conversation we should be having about science. These people seem to think that there's just a consensus of experts at the top of the scientific pyramid and we should all just think like they do. Yeah, and those same, you know, experts or actually maybe people higher up have defined what science is. Yeah. You know, they've said here's here's what the nature of science is. Uh it consists in following the guidance of, you know, a group of experts. So, it's a practical um 
endeavor. It's not about knowing for its own sake. It's not about um, finding out the true propositions about a thing or a situation or an event. It's really, it translates into action. So science is a way forward. It's not something that could be considered objective Mm-hmm. As in, it's always and everywhere true, right? Or it's going to be true regardless of the, you know, accidents of of a particular uh, situation. But, you know, in the paper, they say, we really want to avoid these biased terms like calling people anti-science. So we're going to use their own term and we're going to call them anti, anti-maskers, <laughs> right? Which is fudging, you know, because... Maybe not everyone in the group is an anti-masker, you know. So this is just how sloppy the scholarship is and how mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's not scholarship, it's propaganda. But, you know, they're going to say we're going to use this more precise term that people have used for themselves when it actually generalizes way too much and and it's it's a sort of, it's, posited to us as a sort of virtue signaling. Um, but anyway, that that all goes to the fact that they don't <laughs> they don't really know what science is themselves, I don't think. And they give us these two alternatives. Well, you either believe the experts or you're going to go around uh, questioning things and trying to figure them out for yourself. And they never really give a name to that process process that they believe is unscientific the questioning and the right. you know, verifying and and things like that so well, really i think that there's a lot of intellectual confusion here i mean this is what gets back to your point about using that term epistemology because the throughout the entire paper they essentially show how the quote anti-maskers are utilizing the same <laughs> epistemological tools yeah the same methodology as as the as other scientists they're just coming to a different conclusion uh and even trying to uh, they're but they're using the same epistemology that's what's so funny they didn't really use the correct term to describe um what is the difference here and and yes there is a fundamental difference between the philosophy of science in that they're arguing that the scientific hierarchy determines the absolute truth and i think that the anti-maskers uh, believe that critical thinking and the scientific method is a valuable tool to come to our own conclusions utilizing our own critical thinking capacities um, and asking experts. And this is another thing that we will get into and we'll talk about um, from the, from these guys at MIT, from their point of view, the consensus of experts is the truth with the capital yeah. T, what Eric Vogelin would have called the, the climate of opinions, because it doesn't matter how many people think something is true. It's not actually true unless you, uh, uh, I mean, unless it can be proven, but if you're a real scientist, then you're, you know, as soon as a different data set comes in, for example, the data set that says that the anti-maskers are really scientifically literate, then you would have to change your opinion about their point of view. Uh, You can't have confirmation bias. You have to be always open-minded and skeptical and doubting. This goes back to our conversation about Socrates. Um, 
and not just participating blindly in this climate of opinions or the consensus of experts. Um, and, and that's yeah. the difference, but that's not an epistemological difference. That's more of a fundamental philosophical difference in, in right. discussing the philosophy of science, which is something that we should all be publicly debating. I mean, that's what's amazing about this. Like this consensus of experts idea is something that they've imposed on us. And when you go, hey, wait a minute, but I, I'm an individual sovereign being, so I'm thinking for myself, so I take expert advice. And, th and they actually go in this paper and discuss how, while they were lurking on these Facebook pages, <laughs> they discovered that there were many experts, some of whom had PhDs and had been published in, in uh, scientific journals. And the people yeah. would go for them for advice and then make their choices according to the, you know, accordingly using expert advice. So, yeah, there's a, a difference in, in our approach to the scientific methodology, but it's not a difference in epistemology. Right. And, you know, I mean, I find that what they're really talking about is a moral system, you know, a system of ethics. Right. So, so the assumption that they take for granted is, I mean, we could, you know, start with one and then we might have to adjust here, but, but let's start with the idea that we ought to obey the experts, right? Like they right. believe, and they, there is a line. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, about it's these horrifying results. Do you remember I think, that? I think they used that word twice, horrifying. They, they came to these horrifying conclusions based on their scientific methodology, which was really sound, but it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like these, if, you know, we use the same data sets, we use the same methods, uh, we produce different data visualizations, which means like different stories. Of yeah, the different data. charts. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that are supposed to guide toward different ends. Um, and so they're talking about this, but they say these anti maskers, how could they have done this and then advocate such horrifying? Uh, courses of action how could yeah. they possibly call for us to disagree with the advice of these experts um so they're they're talking about you know you have to follow authority but then they also are presupposing that science is going to confirm this sort of uh like like the good moral course of action right absolutely but they already have assumed what that looks like, and that is following the experts. Why? Because the experts have in mind the health and safety of the whole. Um, and, you know, they never, they never consider this. Now, that could be beyond the scope of their research. But certainly, as you point out, like the arguments that the anti-maskers make are such good arguments that you would think anyone who cared at all about the process of knowing what's real and what isn't, they would, they would have to entertain those arguments. But yeah. here it's like no way because it's, it's horrifying. It's something that plays to our emotions and it's going to, you know, it could endanger the community and right. we would not want that to happen at all. To, to doubt the hierarchy, to doubt the authority 
is a horrifying thing to do, right? I mean, yes. you're and you're yes. totally right that it is underlying all of this entire paper is a system of ethics that they never discuss, but it's just presumed. It's just assumed that everybody knows that if you don't do what the authority tells you, then you are a horrible person, right? Yeah. And so how do these people, I mean, they even use these terms, uh, orthodox and heterodox, yeah. like, uh, like, very, like, I mean, it just start. it's, it really like the, the religious or, you know, cult like mm -hmm. aspect of this, this F, this ethos or this ethic that's, that's behind this paper bleeds through when they start using words like orthodoxy and heterodoxy, like the people yes. that think differently are heterodox. They're, they're not just people that have a different opinion that should be debated because they made a great argument you know, and we should contemplate the veracity of what they're discussing. Instead, their conclusions are horrifying and they're heterodox. Yeah, heretics, really. Heretic, heretics, yeah. exactly. Let's it's burn them heretics. at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though, I mean, you know, heterodoxy should be, you know, if we want to right. push this, like this is pluralism, right? Like you, if well, we want the kind of society that I think a lot of these you know, like the people who push the sort of progressive agenda, it's really a technocratic agenda, but right. they they don't realize that aspect of it. They think of this as progressive and we're moving toward pluralism and many different voices. You know, the like the heterodoxy should be embraced in it, that environment. But it, they're saying, no way, you've got to you've got to row in unison. Like right. this is it is a cult, like you say. We were talking about this beforehand, this use of language and this twisting the use of language, which is so strange because another word for heterodoxy would be diversity, right? And you'll see diversity all over, plastered all over the sustainable development this, the World Economic Forum, Agenda 21. We love diversity, but we hate heterodoxy, right? right? The heterodoxy people are not virtuous because they're not following the authority figure. Right. <laughs> so and, and they that's also, far out. It is, isn't it? And <laughs> then, so wild. You know, as soon as they, you know, like they're going to equate these scientific experts or they're going to sort of put on the same level, these scientific experts with the mainstream media. So, yeah. you know, you have this, you have this, uh, conjunction of, of the media, like the commercial world, the corporate world, you know, the fake advertisement world, like they are linked to this, the, uh, circle of experts that are directing this miserable ship, you know? And right. it's like, if you question that, then you know, you really are heretical. So you have to listen to the mainstream media, which is the mouthpiece of these scientific experts. Right. Which, you know, I mean... <laughs> the orthodoxy. Think, <laughs> yes. And I think, come on, like, I mean, I'm sort of... I'm actually on the cusp of being like a Gen Xer and a millennial. I yeah. sort of... I feel more like Gen X-ish. But um, and I'm kind of optimistic, you know... That's my millennial side. Nice, yeah. It, it, anyway, you. But, you know, like people, <laughs> like you distrust the mainstream media, right? I think both generations, like you think, well, there's going to be what's on the news and, you know, you have to, 
you know, you can't just take that for granted. Like that seems to me that that's been part of this progressive movement. But here we're totally backsliding into you better trust that mainstream media because they give us the pronouncements of these elite uh, scientific guides. Um, right. To me, and, and you're not allowed to doubt. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me go ahead and say, I've, I'm sitting on a quote here and it does mention this idea of democracy. They actually kind of bring it up it, and it's so strange, but okay, first of all, and this is towards the beginning still in the introduction, it says this study shows that there is a fundamental epistemological conflict between maskers and anti-maskers who use the same data, but come to such different conclusions. So we've already talked about that word epistemological, but this is how they're using it. Indeed, anti-maskers often reveal themselves to be more sophisticated in their understanding of how scientific knowledge is socially constructed than their ideological adversaries who espouse a naive realism about the objective truth of public health data. This is what they discovered while they were lurking on our Facebook pages. And then yeah. it goes on to say, yeah, there is no such thing as dispassionate or objective data analysis, which later on in the paper, they, uh, they reveal that this is discussed in these quote unquote anti-mask Facebook groups. And, and people in these groups really try to deal with their own confirmation bias and, and, uh, and they recognize this. And then it goes on and says, um, so this story, now we're talking about scientific data as telling a story, creating these mm -hmm. graphs and these visualizations. This story is about how a public health crisis refracted through seemingly objective numbers and data visualizations is part of a broader battleground about scientific epistemology and democracy in modern American life. And I think that's yeah. so funny that they think that following the hierarchy and participating in the orthodoxy these are not democratic concepts. <laughs> it has right. nothing to do with democracy. And, and so right. it's so funny. It reminds me of, uh, I read Edward Bernays' book, who uh, was a, a, an early 20th century propagandist, one of the early um, media manipulators and marketers, uh, did a lot of propaganda for World War I. And then he wrote this book called Propaganda. And he literally says in this book that like, well, you know, we all know that that the rich people basically run this country, and and in order to to run a functioning democracy, then we need to make sure that the people get the right propaganda, so that our democracy can be healthy and vibrant and happy, and the wealthy people can run things the way that they need to. And it's just, I mean, they say these things with a straight face, like, well, that's not a democracy, man. <laughs> you know, like, you're not talking about democracy when you're talking about you know authoritarian hierarchies producing an orthodoxy and then pretending like, like, again, like you're talking about, like, it's not virtuous. You're somehow being unethical if you question the authority. Just nuts. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this, it puzzles me why they would even bring the term democracy in. Yeah. Because, you know, I think that, you know, and in, in what I would consider sort of traditional, uh, view of science, like there is a, there is a, a sort of separation between expert knowledge and then, you know, the tastes and preferences of the majority of people in politics as expressed in politics mm -hmm. and through the political process. So, 
you know, science, like the conclusions of science should not defer to majority opinion, right? I mean, totally, (laughs) right. You know, uh, so why, why even bring this in here, except that it is a sort of value that, that, uh, these authors are bringing in, uh, at the same time that, you know, that, that they're also telling us that we have to listen to the experts. So there's that contradiction that you point out between democracy and the rule of, of experts and elites that we don't really even know who the, those elites are. Right. But then there's also like, why are you muddying the waters by bringing concerns of politics and political forms into this, uh, this paper that should be about, you know, at, well, you know, how these skeptics use things, I guess that's the, the question that they're trying to explain or something, but, but it seems just, uh, it's it's shocking to me, and it shows how political the entire uh, pandemic has been. It's really a political move, and I would say it's like th- to end politics, actually, uh, you know, to end a genuine debate between two parties. Right. Um, which actually, if you, so I'm thinking out loud, this is my sort of just going through here, but you know, as I've looked at certain symbols through and corporate uh, marketing strategies and things, one one trope that I've noticed a lot of is this melding of the red and the blue into a purple. Mm-hmm. The I, third way. Start, <laughs> yes, and I started to notice that because, like, in my local area, there were all of these propaganda pieces about turning a red state purple you know yeah interesting. Uh, so yeah so I was just like clued into that and and the more I read about that you know transition to purple on the political front the more I was struck by the fact that this is really about ending all kinds of debate so you see we are seeing lots of rhetoric about bipartisan solutions to things and you know, that language appeals to us because we think, oh, well, people aren't fighting anymore. But what it really means is that you're not having the conversations anymore. So this right. is like the end of politics. So right there, you know, maybe, I mean, I still don't think that a, a self-respecting scientific paper ought to be bringing in concerns of like democracy and epistemology together like those two things don't seem to go but there is a sort of parallel between this uh shutting down of debate um i I think you're absolutely right and and it's one of the things that struck me when i read this thing was that instead of saying instead of looking and viewing these facebook groups these twitter groups and collating the data on what was said and how it was shared and what kind of charts and graphs were shared and explained. Uh, and, and then coming to the conclusion that like, wow, these people are making their own charts and graphs. They're highly scientifically literate. They're doing an incredible job of uh, assessing the raw data. They're complaining about the, the quality of the data that they're getting from yeah. the government. And they're asking for better data that they can, uh, you know, 
that they can analyze more accurately. Um, and, and yet it never occurs to them in this paper that they should be debating these people. Instead, they're lurking in their Facebook groups yes. and not actually having as if the people that are like, you know, this is another thing that strikes me. Like, I mean, as someone who has basically been against this lockdown from the very, very beginning, because I've always thought that it was doing more harm than good. Uh, I can tell you that my motivations are because I don't like seeing people get hurt. You know, right. I I don't like seeing people get hurt by these lockdowns unnecessarily. I don't like seeing so many people out of work and, and so many businesses going under, especially when I don't think it's nearly justified based on the data that I've seen. Uh, and to and to not even be allowed to debate, right? You're exactly right that this kind of verbiage that this paper is espousing is essentially shutting down the idea that that we should be having differences of opinions, that we should be talking things out and coming to conclusions based on any kind of democratic process. Instead, it's clearly yeah. just assuming that you know the scientific hierarchy can can never be wrong and we just need to be to do what we're told it's it has frightening implications actually and we've all this is where we're at i mean we know this like it's funny that most people aren't as concerned i mean as soon as the governors of these states ah state of emergency based on some initial COVID numbers that we thought were pretty sketchy (laughs) and then our democracies were shut down and nobody discussed it we didn't have a conversation on the mainstream media about our freedom of speech our rights to freedom of assembly even the right to worship when churches were closed down i yeah. it's just shocking it is shocking i mean it's shocking that people haven't you know even like you say just ask the question of why are we only hearing one side mm-hmm. of this uh, you know, of this uh, policy program, of this uh, course of action. Like, I mean, that should be enough to, you know, send out red flags and make people wonder uh, about uh, what's really going on is that we're only hearing one side, you know? And sometimes we might get a nugget here or there. Oh, well, the masks work. Oh, well, the masks don't work. Oh, well, you need four masks, Right. You know, <laughs> there's a little bit of confusion there, but it's just absolutely absurd. But so we have not ever seen any kind of, you know, genuine back and forth between people who who are prepared to show their data sets, to show how their models work. That has never occurred and people have not asked for it. Um, you you know, that was another confusing thing about this paper. Towards the end, they actually posit that one of the problems is that they come out and they pretend like science is always right. And so when the CDC flip-flops about, and they use the example of mask wearing, right? Then yeah. people distrust the institution even more. So yes. it's like, well, okay, so if you're admitting that science isn't always right, then why shouldn't <laughs> we be having a debate about what you know conclusions this data is is getting us into here uh, it was just so wild <laughs> yeah it is well and you know just to go back to this the passage that you point out about education um i think this is on the third page of it uh you know that calls for increased literacy have become a form of wrong-headed solutionism that posits education as the fix to all media related problems yeah 
you know, media literacy can backfire. Um, that's the same thing that you're mentioning here. You know, being honest about, you know, being wrong about masking policy, ooh, that can backfire. So what we're, you know, this paper is showing that you're, they are concerned just with achieving a certain behavioral outcome. Yeah. You know, they, they want people to listen to the experts. They want people to follow the advice. And that is what they are taking as an assumption because it is better for the community as a whole, because it, you know, coincides with their understanding of what science is, you know, they just have to have this specific response. Like that is what they've got to get out and, and education and questioning are going to decrease the likelihood of getting the outcome that they're seeking. Right. <laughs> so they don't want to do it. Yeah. Right? Got to stop educating people or making them more scientifically literate because then they might be able to analyze the data for themselves. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, how do they, I mean, now as I think about it, maybe they're smarter than, than I first would, would, you know, imagine because just, after that passage, um, under the, it's like the second section related word data and visualization literacies, mm-hmm. you know, he, it says linguistic anthropologists have shown that literacy is not just the ability to encode and decode written messages. The skills related to reading and writing are historically embedded and take on different meanings in a given social context, depending on who has access to them. And what people think they should and shouldn't be used for. Right. So, uh, you know, I what I get from this passage is they are really, they're trying to say that, you know, people who are able to read and write, they're privileged. Right. And that's going to, in the end, that's, I think, how they're going to bring it back to this white supremacy argument. Sure. Is to say people who can look at the data and come up with an alternative account of what it means, what we should do, like they really are, they have been trained in in a certain uh, social context, you know, they've been privileged in some way that others haven't. And so, you know, you and I have discussed this push for equity, which is a great leveling um, that's so attractive to people right now. And I think we're going to see that what, you know, what is going to be leveled, it's going to be the ability to read and write critically yeah, exactly. Because if you're educated, then you're going, if, you know, not even educated, you know, getting some fancy degree or title or whatever. But if you're if you're a self-educated person who understands how to test the assumptions of any given text or any material that you've been presented with, if you are the kind of person who uh, who has been trained in or developed these skills related to reading and writing, you know, you are going to have some kind of like 
I'm going to use a pen here, you'll be inoculated against this media, uh, you know, the drug or the prescription that they are dishing out. Well, I mean, it really is almost like a a war against the kind of critical thinking that we discussed in our Mm -hmm. last interview with, with Eric Vogelin, where the idea of an education is to you know, is to have it or, or the where they, they're putting it in terms of, of media literacy to be a literate person is yeah. should be to actually augment your own critical thinking skills so you can make better life choices for yourself. And they're kind of stigmatizing it based on, oh, you've got this cultural background. You're just telling some kind of story to yourself. And I, and I actually have a quote here just because, I mean, you mentioned the racism aspect. They, they kind of imply on multiple occasions that anti-maskers must be racist. And they don't, yeah. they don't actually have any evidence. In fact, they quote from Facebook posts and Twitter posts <laughs> all the time to, to, to show you how scientifically literate anti-maskers are but they have no quotes apparently available to show how white supremacist we all must be but it must be some kind of they call it the deep story but all this is the the beginning of that argument it has to be there yeah it has to be there somewhere and that's the only way we can explain this thing (laughs) this was kind of the beginning of the argument and i and i see too it's right before the the horrifying end so i'll just read this paragraph just to let people know this is the angle that this paper was is taking because they're so confused about the high level of scientific literacy amongst the anti-vasculars. <laughs> there, there, there must be another reason for this. So this paper builds on these approaches to investigate the epistemological crisis that leads some people to conclude that mask wearing is a crucial public health measure and for others to reject it completely. And they go into like data feminists, anti-mask groups similarly identify problems of political power within data sets that are released or otherwise withheld by the US government. So what's interesting to me is that they actually admit that the anti-maskers are discussing power dynamics here. They yeah. they say this and then they try to and then they try to conflate it, but but they're not using postmodern or critical race theory. So they must just be racist and they must be talking about something else. They're not concerned about power dynamics, just like everybody should be concerned about power dynamics. And certainly it's not the government or the corporations having too much power. It must be a race thing, you know, and and that's the next paragraph then. Um, Indeed, they contend that the way COVID data is currently being collected is non-neutral and they seek liberation from what they see as an increasingly authoritarian state that weaponizes science to exacerbate (laughs) persistent and asymmetric power relations, which is like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you have any evidence to say that that's not what's going on? I mean, that, and that happens throughout this whole article to me as they make the, well, anti-maskers make this claim and I was like, yeah, do you have any evidence yeah. that that claim is untrue? And they don't even go there. Like, they don't even try to have that debate. Like, they're just bypassing debate altogether and just saying, no, no, these people must just be crazy people because they're not doing what the authority is telling them. And they they must be paranoid because they think the authority might be corrupt, you know? like Yeah. And, and really, I mean, you know, I have not done a deep dive into critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this kind of, this kind of argument here seems to me to be parallel to the argument that critical race theorists would make, right? It's right. that there have been systems uh, designed to 
uh, repress, oppress a certain people group, right? So these systems, these structurally racist systems are authoritarians who weaponize science uh, to exacerbate persistent and asymmetric power relations. I mean, that's so, you know, if anything, I would think that these anti-maskers who are very sensitive to this authoritarian state that weaponizes science. I mean, they are they are thinking about power re- relations in the same way that, say, critical race theorists exactly, would. Exactly, right. So, you know, and like you say, I mean, they they show that... Except they're white. <laughs> I know. And so fighting, fighting anti-authoritarianism if you're white means you're a white supremacist. I mean, that's what's so trippy about it. Like... You know, for those of us who don't care the color of our skin and just are concerned about authoritarian behavior by people who are weaponizing science to create a yeah. lockdown to eliminate all of our freedoms, yeah. right? That particularly hurts people of color. I mean, you know, it, act- that's it does. What, yeah. You know, that's why the, you know, and the UN, the WEF, they are all really exploiting that. I mean, I think it's by yeah. design. You know, I think it, it was meant to hit those communities harder because uh, they do they do have some disadvantages in terms of like weathering the economic storm, you know, that comes with being laid off. And there are lots of pollutants in in their environments, you know, like in urban, um, you know, old urban established neighborhoods and inner cities. So, so I do think that it is, it's true that in, by some measures, those communities of color have been hit harder. Mm -hmm. I think it was by design. Um, But this, this type you know, that's what's so funny to me is that I would argue all day long that the upper classes are absolutely racist. Yeah, <laughs> and so why can't we get together with our, you know, with our brothers and sisters of color and fight those bastards yes. <laughs> without being called a racist? It's just nuts. Well, I mean, it is nuts because yeah. when I look at the evidence, I think, you know, those of us who are calling for businesses to stay open, you know, for uh, people to not have to go to be forced into poverty and relying on government sponsored, like, um, you know, rent assistance and things like this that come with all kinds of strings attached, like nudges for behavioral script and telling people how to raise their children and what foods to eat and whether or not you can use this much energy, you know, or not like, like I, I think that's not, I mean, I think that's not racist, (laughs) you know, and, and we're all really recognizing these same dynamics. And even, you know, the people who are promoting critical race theory, I would hope that maybe we could find some, some common ground just on looking at the, the real power behind these authoritarian structures. Now we don't, agree right now about where that comes from. I don't think it is attached specifically to race. To me, it seems more like class and, yeah. you know, spiritual, psychological health. You know, you have like right. some pretty sick, twisted people who do this stuff. I, 
I actually do believe that the the race thing, they do this race baiting. Yes. Even if you go back into the history of racism in the United States, you can find something called Bacon's Rebellion in 17, it was 1685 or something like way back where the, the white, basically the white slaves or the indentured servants and the black slaves w- would occasionally, they would get together and collectively fight the plantation owners. Like, you know, this is BS. We're not standing for this and we're happy enough to work together, right? To yeah. liberate ourselves. And that by like 1720, 1730, the plantation owners had kind of fabricated this division based on race because then the white people would feel a little bit more superior than the black people and they wouldn't want to work together to to fight the upper class and i i think it's a total i mean i think they're just playing the same game today you know they they race bait so that we don't get together and fight the class war yeah 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 and and and, you know and it's going to come through i mean a main way that that war is waged against people who otherwise have so much in common you know I think it does come through um, educational systems and you know how different communities are taught to read and write and do these types of things and the value that's placed on reading and writing and and approaching uh you know, like the media critically, um, you know, if, well, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, I do think that it has to do with how we're taught to engage in those skills and, and, you know, how socially acceptable it is to have those skills. And right now, I mean, we're going to see, especially with the way that education is being uh, transformed, deformed right now as a result of COVID and it's moving, well, it's accelerated because of COVID. It's been right. in the works for a while, but, you know, this, the transition to doing everything on a screen and visually rather than with paper and books and, you know, reading long passages, um, th- that, that, transition is designed to prevent most people including the groups the and like the anti-masker groups that have some media literacy it's designed to take people down to where they're unable to uh, critically examine the right. narrative that we're being fed yeah interesting i mean probably one of the reasons why they even are so interested in writing this paper about visualizations is because they they want to switch over from teaching critical thinking to Mm -hmm. teaching from these visualizations alone. And they're trying to just figure out, you know, oh, we've got these people that aren't being fooled by our current visualization packages. So how do we approach this so that we can just, yeah, instead of, instead of, uh, instead of teaching on that educational level, you know, how to read books, how to analyze long passages, like you're, they're just going to be shoving data in our faces using these graphs and these visualizations. Yeah, and there's no way really to question it. And, you know, I remember watching a promo video for the World Economic Forum and their fourth industrial revolution. And it talks about, I wish I could remember the exact like words, but it talks about not, we need, instead of protecting free speech, we need to be protecting free thought. Well, that sounds like it's more expansive, right? Right. 
But, and, and that promo video came out before the masks that make talking difficult, right? Yeah. Uh, You know, but what, I mean, I think they were doing a couple of things. I think they're priming for a couple of things. One is like trying to uh, devalue free speech. And, you know, the first amendment right now is really, I mean, the first amendment protects heterodoxy, right? Absolutely. Sort of bring this around. Like it protects diverse, uh, diverse positions in, in all sorts of areas. And yeah, the world economic form has to really get rid of here in the States, like the, uh, the first amendment protections that allow us to be right. heretics if we want. Right. But I think also with, you know, another point of that by moving from free speech into free thought is that this is a move toward not just not using language at all you know we're supposed to be just seeing things and understanding immediately right without reflecting in language and words and and critical thought. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the quote but I think they even mentioned somewhere in here that um the anti-maskers often you know they sort of believe that we've been uh you know that that we've been dumbed down that that the system is oh, dumbing yes, us yes. down and yeah. this was one of the beliefs in the in the uh, that they that they would kept bumping into in their facebook groups and uh, i think it's really true i mean i've done a couple of interviews with with educators um and over time clearly i mean you know what uh julianne one of the things that i even thought about when i was doing a lot of reading philosophy reading 19th 18th 19th century philosophy in college was like my god these guys have you know one hell of a vocabulary like when i first started i'm sure you had the same experience like i had to have a dictionary you know (laughs) and like every couple of sentences i'd be like i don't know what that means i better look that up um because they were just incredibly intelligent and you can clearly see uh, throughout the 20th century that even the number of words that people know uh, yeah, yeah, it's so interesting that they talk about literacy like in this paper like that um, and to have that realization that like our, we have been dumbed down. And I think you may very well be right um, to see to, to say that eventually, I mean, I think I don't even I, I can't remember the exact number, but, uh, you know, there's some tens of thousands of words uh, in terms of vocabulary that people don't have these days that were common 100 to 200 years ago people just had a right. way larger vocabulary and then now like you're talking about i think they're going to be shrinking that vocabulary until we're not even reading books anymore we're just using these these visualizations that they're just going to be giving us that are going to show us the data that we need to know to do the next job for them you know yeah <laughs> and I mean, they're not going to teach gonna, us anything more and it's going to go right into a pair of vr goggles right you know? <laughs> And I was reading a, a study about, you know, how TV sort of hypnot- it hypnotizes you, you know, yeah. it creates these, I think it's maybe alpha waves in your brain that are like the, they're similar to the early stages of sleep. Right. And if, you know, those waves in 
I mean, you have to check me on this because I'm going off of memory here, but uh, those waves are produced if you are watching a screen. But if you're only listening to the content, even if the screen is on, but say, you know, you're doing something else and just listening, right. then you don't have those, that kind of, uh, that hypnosis, yeah. hypnotic, yeah. Uh, you know, stimuli, stimulus. Right. Um, so when, if we're delivered these visual uh, messages, you know, then we're much more likely to simply accept them and follow the experts. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. once we've moved away from thought. Can't have the plebeians weaponizing critical thinking, can we? <laughs> no, it's dangerous. It's a right? dangerous weapon. <laughs> well, let, let me just finish this quote. It actually includes the horrifying ends uh, quote that you were talking about earlier. And, and, it, and it does connect this whole thing with... Uh, with the racism, the way they do it is so funny, but um, uh, so I just wanted to finish this up. The, this paper shows that more critical approaches to visualization are necessary and the frameworks used by these researchers, uh, e.g. critical race theory, gender analysis, and social studies of science, which I think the yeah. social study of science is almost more the direction this paper is seems to go with rather than actually being a, a scientific paper about, you know, like they're because they're they just inject occasionally this critical race theory thing uh, that seems out of place to me in the context of having a conversation about the philosophy of science. But so yeah. be it. Um, I mean, you know, I guess it, it is interesting because I do think that there's a conversation that can be had. I mean, we basically just kind of had it about you know, the difference between the power dynamics in critical race theory and the power dynamics that the quote unquote anti-maskers clearly also understand. Like, I feel like there's more in common. Yes. <laughs> They're both talking about power dynamics. And, and so it's even like, what is this difference that they're trying to get at with this argument? But just to finish this up, um, the, the social studies of science, let's see, the frameworks used by these researchers are crucial to disentangle how anti-mask groups mobilize visualizations politically to achieve powerful and even horrifying ends. So because they're not, they're using a different power dynamic than critical race theory or gender analysis, they're horrible. They're horrifying. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay. Is it Everyone's going to die. If yeah. you do not listen to these public health experts, we're all going to die. Right. You know? And, you know, just a little bit before that, you know, this talks about, uh, you know, uh, climate, a study of climate skeptics uh, by Frank Fisher. And it says, you know, Frank Fisher argues that Increasing fact-checking or levels of scientific literacy is insufficient for fighting alternative facts. Right. While fact-checking is a worthy activity, Facebook, yeah. we need to look deeper into this phenomenon to find out what it is about. Like, why are we fact-checking? Like, why would we want to know? So this, this goes to your point about this social science scientific uh, slant of this like yeah why, what's wrong with you that you want to go against these experts and then this says that you know the discussion around covid data sets and visualizations are manifestations of it of deeper political questions about the role of science in public life so i guess that answers my question about 
why they would bring up democracy, right? Yeah. Uh, because how we visualize things, that's a window into our soul and it's a window into our intent to dominate um, other, you know, or to support democracy, which again, I mean, the double speak is just nuts. This actually reminds me, I remember when the, if you'll recall the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and those were the guys that were leeching a lot of the Facebook data and then getting hired by politicians. I think even Donald Trump hired them for his campaign to, to mm -hmm. specifically target certain people. So I go on Cambridge Analytica's website, right? Just to check them out. And they actually said like, we are here to help you manage your democracy. <laughs> like that was their catchphrase. <laughs> manage democracy management was what they did. Oh, and I was just I like, like that. Yeah, right. Like again, talk about double speak. Like, oh, okay. It's not about like people making choices for themselves and then voting according to how they feel. It's about yeah. the upper classes utilizing this data to manage their democracy, to make sure that, you know, the people Jeez. vote the way that the authority figures tell them to. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So nuts. It's so nuts the way that they don't, I mean, I guess you can't come out and say, you know, I'm an elite dictator who loves totalitarian <laughs> authoritarianism that's just not going to fly so you have to try to make it sound like you believe in you know freedom and democracy somehow you know <laughs> yeah. gee so i nuts. mean do they even know yeah i it's it's just unbelievable oh did you catch this about facebook's crowd tangle tool so this is in the part about the the deep hanging out and the deep oh, learning. Oh yes. So mm -hmm. I'll just let's just tell the audience about this. This is 3.2, Facebook data and qualitative analysis. So they used Twitter for quantitative analysis cuz they could just kind of chart who mm -hmm. tweeted who and and what the Twitter what the tweeting communities were like, but on Facebook you got comments. So you get qualitative <laughs> analysis from the comments and this this includes <laughs> It's so outrageous. Um, let's see. While qualitative research can involve clinical protocols like interviews or surveys, Gertz argues that the most substantial ethnographic insights into the cultural life of a community come from deep hanging out, <laughs> which means spying on people, right? Uh, long-term participation, long-term participant observation alongside its members using lurking a mode of participating yeah. by observing specific to digital platforms we propose deep lurking as a way of systematically documenting the cultural practices of online communities sweet thanks so you've got to spy on us in order to figure out what we the think cultural practice you can't just ask yeah you can't ask i mean there's nothing about <laughs> You know, securing informed consent. Yeah, exactly. Kind of exactly. I mean, we hear nothing about running this by an institutional review board. And there are, you know, there are quotes, like actual users' quotes that are presented in this paper. So, you know, you wonder right. about ethical violations because, you know, with the very sophisticated technology out there, we can find out who said these things or the CIA can. <laughs> I probably could. I know, but, right? But you know, you can you could look up who said this, and you could find out. Oh well, this person is in such and such group, and it could. I mean, there's a data trail uh, 
that is left behind. And, and I just wonder, was there informed consent? Was there an institutional review board looking over this? But then, yeah, you're talking about coming up with community uh, profiling here. You know, right. we're, we're going to develop this set of characteristics that's going to eventually, I think, lead to um, the pre-crime unit. That's exactly where this is headed, right? This is all pre-crime for sure, yeah. to make sure that we don't participate in thought crimes later on, right? right? Later on down the, we oh my gosh, somebody, heretics. yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody thought the authority was incorrect. We better get them quick before they yeah. get out of their Facebook community. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, check this out. And this was another thing that kind of wigged me out. Um, to that end, we followed five Facebook groups, each with a wide range of followers over the first six months of the coronavirus pandemic. And we collected posts throughout the platform that included terms for coronavirus and visualization with Facebook's crowd tangle tool. Oh, yeah. So it was like, oh, sweet. Now they can just, you know, hunt us down based on search terms with this crowd tangle tool that Facebook gives to them. Yeah. You know, pretty, and that uses like these photos of in-person events. I don't know if you're going to finish reading that section. No, I mean, I think I'm, I'm good with that for now, but... Yeah, so they analyze this all the way back from September and they're using, you know, they're using photos that have been uploaded to identify, you know, your yeah. networks of, of fellow heretics. and Right, pretty far out. And yeah. then here is the part about the anti-mask. We use the term anti-mask as a cynic dope for a broad spectrum of beliefs, what the pandemic that the pandemic is exa exaggerated, schools should be opening, et cetera. Huh. Yeah. While groups who hold these beliefs are certainly heterogeneous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to oh. say that, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're not going to really, you know, we're not going to profile you, but, um, but wait, yeah, we are. Yeah, the mask is a common flashpoint throughout the ethnographic data. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, this mm -hmm. is a good one. This is a good one. This study, therefore, takes an emic, i.e. insider approach, insider meaning spying on us, approach to analyzing <laughs> how members of these groups think, talk, and interact with one another, which starts by using the terms that these community members would use to describe themselves. There is a temptation in studies of this nature to describe these groups as anti-science, but this would make it completely impossible for us to meaningfully investigate this article's central question, <laughs> understanding what these groups mean when they say science. <laughs> so. Yeah, which they, I mean, I don't know if that was the article's central question. I mean, the central question is, how do they arrive at these different, you know, uh, desire or these different uh, prescribed outcomes? Yeah. Isn't it? You know, they use how these skeptics use orthodox data practices to promote unorthodox science. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I actually have found it difficult to really pinpoint their question, even though they say it a couple of times. They're like, well, this is our question. This is our question. But, right. Well, you know, the interesting thing, 
I think the interesting thing is the solution to their quandary is to have to debate. Like, what do they do? They're lurking. They're literally, I mean, look at how they're describing this. They're lurking mm-hmm. in the communities. They're spying on people. They're trying to understand. It's like, yeah, we have a difference of opinion based on the data. So why don't we have a public debate, public discussion about it, and then have a vote like in an actual democracy? Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is the solution to their quandary, but they, they're not, they won't. And that, you know, it's funny. I've, I've been doing so much of this. I was telling you before the show, this psychological work, because like logical conversations aren't working. There seems to be so much cognitive dissonance going on. Right. And I've, I'm starting to learn to analyze the psychology, like this dysfunctional psychology, this, um, I mean, basically you can kind of describe it as an, uh, you know, the government or the corporate system is a, an abusive father figure. And, and if yeah. you analyze it with, family system psychoanalysis, you know, it's like, oh, and so I, I see, you know, they call it red flags. Like if you're dealing with a really passive aggressive person who's avoiding having that conversation that you want to have about your relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use all these uh, techniques to try to avoid having that uncomfortable conversation. And that's what this feels like to me. Like it's a red flag. Like, why don't you just have, it's an uncomfortable conversation. I get it. You don't want to believe that Dr. Fauci is lying to you because he's corrupted by big pharma and the tens of hundreds of billions of dollars they're going to make off this MRNA vaccine technology. And it's hard for you, right. To accept the fact that yeah. the system could be this corrupt, but unfortunately it looks like it might be that way. So why don't we have an open discussion, a conversation? You might be exposed to some feelings that you don't want to have, but we will help each other work through this, right? Yeah, but you know, they're, they from, don't MI- they're from MIT. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it would hit too close to home. Yeah. Because, you know, MIT, I mean, the technology review was one of the first publications to come out and say, we're not ever going back to, you know, to normal. Like we're, yeah. they're, we're not going back. And I mean, MIT has been pushing this more than anyone, this narrative. So, you know, the, the fact that this paper is published by, you know, so many, uh, I don't know if they're, students or if they are faculty i did not look them up but you know they're affiliated with mit and they if if you really engage in that kind of a debate that might produce some genuine answers then you're going to find out that the institution that you're affiliated with is uh, i would say wholly corrupt right you know right and people are so heavily invested at that point uh, with an organization or an institution like that. And if you did, if you did come up, I mean, we talked a little bit about this in terms of the journalists or the PhDs, how, how people, you know, they can't imagine that uh, their, you know, certainly their doctor is not involved in a grand conspiracy to make the pharmaceutical corporations billions of dollars. Yeah. And it's like, but actually, if he spoke out against it, against the scientific hierarchy, he might lose his job. Certainly his, uh, you know, his credentials uh, would be threatened and um, he might even lose the ability to practice medicine. I mean, the same is true. I'm sure, you know, these people at MIT, they want to have a career in academia as you did. Uh, and, uh, you know, they know that if they started speaking out against the hierarchy, then they're going to yeah. lose their job. And, and for a lot of people, it's just easier 
to look the other way. It's easier. Again, it's a, it's avoidance. That's why psychology makes so much more sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they'd rather just not see what's right in front of their face because it's, you know, it would be damaging. It would be hurtful. And so they're avoiding the pain and they're just going along to get along in their careers. And, and that's what's happening in journalism. That's why the, the, uh, you know, the journalists don't speak out against the the hierarchy. Yeah. There was just and, this... and these people have been selected too. I mean, these right. you know, you don't you, you don't become affiliated with one of these elite institutions without, you know, being vetted. Absolutely. And, and I think people I, I did not realize that until I started digging into, you know, the the different lobbying groups for higher education and, you know, for nonprofit organizations that want to use universities, especially to promote like social impact programs and change maker programs. Mm -hmm. I had no clue that there is a, you know, there's a sophisticated uh, process of let's call it deep lurking, you know, (laughs) that goes into, you know, recruiting people to these elite institutions who are just, they're not going to question anything, not even because they, they recognize that there's something to question and they, they don't want to go there because it would uh, contravene their own self-interest. Like they're not even at that level. Like the people who are recruited really are so far, I think, along in terms of cognitive dissonance and sure. and denial that they cannot really even see these things. I'm just going to take a quick station break to let everyone know that this is where I made the cut for the free version of the episode. Get the full-length version of the podcast ad-free in audio by subscribing at theshiftnow.com. You can go to rockfin.com and subscribe for all premium content available on the platform to watch the video. This episode has been brought to you by Enagic Water Systems, providing ionized alkaline water straight from your tap, as well as the Freedom Era Network, which offers tools and information to make your online business a success. Find out more by clicking the store tab at www.theshiftnow.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, pretty crazy. Um, I don't know, maybe just a few more quotes here and then I'll let you go. But um, just to, in total conclusion, what they're saying is this paper represents, this paper presents a community of users that researchers might not consider in the systems building process, supposedly data illiterate anti-maskers. And we show how the binary opposition of literacy illiteracy is insufficient for describing how unorthodox visualizations can be used to promote, excuse me, how orthodox visualizations can be used to promote unorthodox science. Again, being data literate, being scientifically literate, not necessarily a good thing, not what they need to be after. Um, And the reasons, this is what's so funny, anti-mask users in particular were predisposed to digging through the scientific literature and highlighting the uncertainty in academic publications that media organizations elide. So this is the part about um, the CDC where, yeah, oh yeah, so interesting, where they admit that science isn't always right. Like, like the whole paper is based on this ethos, like we've been talking about, that the science is settled. You've got to do what the scientific hierarchy says. And then at the very end, 
Yeah. Let's see. Um, what then are visualization researchers and social scientists to do? One step might be to grapple with the social and political dimensions of visualizations at the beginning rather than at the end of the projects. Mm -hmm. This involves in part a shift from positivist to interpretivist frameworks in visualization research, where we recognize that knowledge we produce in visualization systems is fundamentally multiple, subjective, and socially constructed. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so they don't believe in truth. I mean, right, really. You right, know, like they right. much, you know, they don't believe in objective truth. And then a secondary issue is one of uncertainty. Um, these people showed how not communicating the uncertainty inherent in scientific writing has contributed to the erosion of public trust in science. And that's the one that really blows my mind is that then they do show that science is uncertain. Like they, it will find, you know, that it does evolve and there is new data that comes in that changes people's minds. Yeah. And they're like, you know, they're, <laughs> they can't be too arrogant in front of people or else and pretend like the authority is always right. Even that's what, though that's what they're advocating this whole time. It's, it's just so crazy. Anyway, so the very end, in other words, our paper introduces new ways of thinking about democratizing data analysis and visualization. So there's this whole democratic process that's, that's anti-democratic, <laughs> but they're trying to pretend like it's democratic. Yeah. Instead of teaching increased adoption of data-driven storytelling yeah. as an unqualified good, and that's like all of a sudden, this they mentioned this at the beginning, but then here at the end, scientific, objective, scientific, data-driven, critical thinking is now storytelling. Yeah. So it's like, okay, like you were talking about the, the post-truth era. Um, and then, okay, increased adoption of data-driven storytelling as an unqualified good. We show that data visualizations are not simply tools that people use to understand the epidemiological events around them. They are a battleground that highlight the contested role of expertise in modern American life. So, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That is viral visualizations, how coronavirus skeptics use orthodox data practices to promote unorthodox science online. <laughs> Gee. Yep, that was a good one. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. I don't even know what to say after all that. <laughs> I know, right? I, I'm in. I'm kind of in the same boat. I was reading that thing, and it was like when I first started reading it, I was like, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And then I'm glad that we decided that we get together and have this conversation about it to try to make some sense of it. And uh, I don't know. Like you said, we've done it. It's done. People know. Hopefully they, they uh, kind of grasp the way the academic world is, is trying to view what's going on here. But I think we've exposed, actually, this paper is a little more dangerous maybe than I even thought yeah. as I was reading it, right? Yeah. I mean, talking we, about... I mean, yeah, as we talk about it like this, and, you know, I think that these symbols throughout, I mean, they're... You know, the guy from Louisiana, the Hothschild, you know, is so close right. to Rothschild. Right. And, you know, that we would have to look into the significance of that to mention it on the show. But they mentioned, oh, there is another. Oh, this, there's the coup on January 6th and then the September 11th. Like, why would you 
bring up September 11th. Yeah. And why even bring up the coup as if it was somehow related to the anti-mask, you know, and then they just, and then they just made blanket statements about the coup as if it was driven, completely driven by disinformation. But again, no, no evidence. All the evidence they provided in this paper was, was anti-lockdown. Yeah. Anti-mask like facts and, and showing that the people who participated were really cool and interested and caring people. Uh, And then they out of left field talk about the coup and white supremacy and the deep story, you know? (laughs) And yeah, and the white and the attempted coup was uh, by dangerous, well calibrated, well funded systems of coordinated disinformation. Yeah. I mean, that that goes absolutely against everything I've said. Now, I mean, I am starting to think that this is this is a more dangerous paper. Yeah. It, it, you know, the, the, the ethics that we were talking about, the idea of virtue, the way that they don't even acknowledge that having a debate with these people, I mean, in our, in through, in our conversation when, you know, we brought up the lurking thing, which I initially thought was weird, but after the conversation, it's like, yeah, like, why didn't they just join the Facebook group and ask some questions? Like there was no reason for them to be that kind of like manipulative and smarmy about observing yeah. these uh, you know others like we're happy to have a conversation yeah. you know <laughs> like yeah. except that you don't think that they're human you know or yeah right you know yeah it's pretty some kind of severe objectification the assumptions that the people are the deep story holds some white supremacy or white privilege uh when all they're clearly doing and all the evidence ever showed that they themselves even show is, you know, caring about their children, caring about their communities, trying to get their hands on accurate data, and then trying yeah. to learn from others in their group about how to interpret the data as best they can. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes me think that they're doing this. It's like a mocking ritual, you know, well, how they do, th- they use those. Right. I, I was like telling you that I thought there was something tongue in cheek about it. You know, where I couldn't believe that the Mm -hmm. conclusions just didn't make any sense based on the, you know, on the content. I have to look these people up and see if I can figure out anything. I'd be be interested in in finding out what you find out if you you do some deeper dives Mm. into the research here. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Ah, the rabbit holes. I know. They never end. Well, okay. Cool, Julianne. Yeah, this one this one went on for a while, but thanks for hanging in there, and I appreciate it. I hope hope it went okay for you. You know, like I'm. Oh, for sure. I have these random thoughts and like doing something like this. I hope that that was all right. Yeah, yeah, it's all part of the process. Um, And I think we did a great job of of hitting all the strong points. So, um, and before we get off, can I just tell you that I listened to your interview with Nikki. And I, I mean, I did not watch it. I listened to it and uh-huh. I was laughing great. out loud. She was cool. It, it was such a great interview. I just right. really enjoyed it. So I just wanted to tell you that that was wonderful. And thank right you. Right on. Thank you. Do you want to, okay. um, I mean, I guess, yeah, I can, I can, I can edit this out, but if you want to let people know where they can find you, um, what was hearts over hexagon? Yeah, it's www.heartsoverhexagons.com and then on Facebook. And I have a totally public profile, so you should not even have to be a Facebook user to access it. All right. 
Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. I hope people take, check it out. Okay. Take care, Doug. You too. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. Bye. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that was the 82nd episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty and my conversation with Dr. Julianne Romanello concerning this paper out of uh, MIT that just blew my mind. I'll post the paper, the entire paper. Let's see. It's called Viral Visualizations, How Coronavirus Skeptics Use Orthodox Data Practices to Promote Unorthodox Science Online. Uh, and it will be posted below so you can enjoy reading the entire thing for yourself. Uh, I got to tell you, when I first heard about this thing, I was like, I kept hearing these rumors on the internet that like MIT came out with this paper that discovered that lockdown skeptics were just incredibly intelligent people who really uh, utilized science uh, to come to the conclusion that the lockdowns were more harmful than they were good. And uh, so I was curious about it. I checked it out. Uh, I'm always looking for more primary sources, more peer-reviewed sources. And so, um, you know, I went to read this thing. And I tell you what, uh, you get into it, uh, it was cracking me up. I mean, I, I hate to even say it, but I mean, I couldn't get through a paragraph without just, it was blowing my mind, the stuff that they were talking about and the way that they were talking about it. And the way that they, I mean, clearly had gone online, and I can just spend a moment, I want to touch on this idea of lurking. They literally called it lurking online, where they were essentially spying on Facebook groups. Like, you know what, guys? You can just engage. Go on Facebook and engage with people who are lockdown skeptics and ask some questions, and then come to your own conclusions. But they felt compelled, apparently, to simply lurk and spy Uh on lockdown skeptics in order to uh, aggregate all of this data concerning the kinds of people who would dare to defy the social hierarchy uh, that creates the scientific establishment, uh, the people at the top of the pyramid that are telling us all exactly what we have to do. Apparently, they know the truth, and the rest of us are incapable of figuring it out for ourselves. Well, they're getting online. They're expecting to find, apparently, a bunch of racist illiterates, and they're thinking that, you know, if only we could come up with better graphic visualizations then we could teach the ignorant masses that the lockdowns are good and that they need to wear masks and they need to social distance and they just need to shut up and do what they're told, right? Uh, if only we could explain it better in our graphic visualizations, then maybe they'll be able to figure it out. Lo and behold, they discovered uh, groups of thousands of people who were interacting with each other, who uh, were highly scientifically literate, would compare the raw data. They didn't trust the graphics that were being produced by people like the folks at MIT, Johns Hopkins University, and the rest of them. They were looking at the raw data uh, they were having conversations about the quality level of that data, and then they were taking that data and they were creating their own visualizations using cutting-edge visualization techniques. Uh, they were actually using science to argue against the science of the establishment, and they were doing a damn good job of it. And I think it really surprised these guys at MIT, like, wow, uh, you know, educating these people about science probably isn't going to change their minds. Making better visualizations isn't going to change their minds. This apparently is a serious problem for these guys. Like, uh, they're coming up using science with the opposite conclusion to the scientific hierarchy, so they're not going to be compliant just because we tell them to. They're thinking for themselves. And this gets into a deeper question. Now, they use the term epistemology, uh, 
from uh, my perspective, as well as we discussed it with uh, Dr. Romanello, the term epistemology, when you're talking about science, actually is you're talking about empiricism, the scientific method. Uh, in the paper, they clearly are discussing how uh, these anti-lockdown these lockdown skeptics are using the epistemology of science. They're using the scientific method to come up with opposite conclusions. Uh, so really what they should have been talking about is not the word epistemology, but the term philosophy of science. Yes, the philosophy of science uh, with the lockdown skeptics is different uh, than the philosophy of science of those who believe that they should simply follow the dictates of the hierarchy. Um, and that is to say, and this is why I had Dr. Romanello on, because we had discussed in our previous interview the difference between sophistry and then individual critical thinking. We went uh, through uh, the philosophy of Eric Vogelin, and then we were also discussing, because Eric Vogelin discusses Socrates quite a bit, the difference between Socrates and the sophists way back in ancient Greece. Uh, Socrates is advocating for individuals to learn how to use logic and critical thinking to make choices for themselves, as opposed to the sophists who believed that they could construct a logical argument that was so sound that everybody should believe what they believed. Uh, and that is exactly what we're dealing with uh, in this argument today between the what I would call the scientismists who believe that we should follow the, the uh, scientific hierarchy and those of us who choose to use the scientific method to come to our own conclusions. Yes, we'll take expert advice, but we've learned critical thinking faculties and we apply them ourselves so that we can make our own decisions about personal decisions, healthcare decisions about our own lives. So you see where we're getting at. The difference here is the difference between believing in a philosophy of freedom where individuals can use logic and critical thinking to make choices for themselves or the belief that a certain few experts, we've heard this all the time, the consensus of experts, but it's not actually a consensus. They talk about it as if it is. Uh, but clearly there are many experts that are engaging in these lockdown skeptic pages. Um, a lot of experts that have different opinions across the spectrum. There is no consensus as they try to tell us that there is. This is just a way of saying you need to follow the hierarchy because the hierarchy knows the truth and you as an individual doesn't have the truth. Now I want to make this connection with the concept of patriarchy in general, right? I mean, aren't we starting to, to hear if you listen to the arguments of these people at MIT, the arguments of the scientismists, uh, doesn't it sound a lot like, you know, you can only find God through the Pope, right? You don't have a direct connection to your own spiritual path, but you have to find it through this system, this new technocratic system where the scientist at the top of the hierarchy dictates how you think, the choices that you make, and you don't have free will. This is just, uh, it's, it's the uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, right? This is sophistry. They, they construct a complicated argument, but, uh, and, and it sounds great. Look at how logical it seems. But what they're using it for is to say, you must do what we tell you, and you can't think for yourself. It's a justification of a completely tyrannical society uh, based on this scientific technocracy. And this paper just... It just lays it out. It's so amazing. Even when they actually do the study and they find out that the people who are anti-lockdown, who are skeptical of the quote-unquote scientific consensus, are actually highly scientifically literate, they have to come up with terms like the weaponization of critical thinking. How crazy is that? Oh, if you think for yourself, 
then you're a dangerous person. You're weaponizing critical thinking. You shouldn't be using critical thinking for yourself. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, guys like John Taylor Gatto talking about the education system. You know, is the education system teaching us to think for ourselves and use our own critical thinking capacities, uh, uh, aka the Socratic method? Or is it teaching us sophistry? Just learn how to make these complicated sounding arguments that justify the, uh, the desires uh, and the actions of the ruling elite. And clearly that's what we're seeing. And this, and this paper at MIT was just the perfect example of how they go about uh, presenting information that is trying to say that we have to do what we're told, even if we're smart enough to come up with arguments that can disagree with it. It's really amazing. Now, the fact that they would lurk on the pages rather than engaging in debate is just phenomenal to me. Just engage in a debate. I mean, throughout the entire paper, they never even like thought to themselves that maybe there should be a public debate. It never had the inkling, the inclination that maybe the quote unquote consensus of experts uh, or the decisions at the top of the scientific hierarchy might not be true that maybe other people could have valid opinions, that maybe that's why we have this democratic process where we have free and open debates and then we make choices based on these debates. Instead, they were just saying, no, no. You know, I mean, the quotes are just phenomenal. Um, calling, calling people with heterodox beliefs, again, the religious symbolism, the scientific orthodoxy, like, it sounds like a, a very conservative patriarchal religion just telling you to do what you're told by the people at the top of the, of the ladder. Uh, not at all the kind of philosophy that you want to see in people who believe in living in a free society, right? Where you are allowed to choose the kind of life that you want to lead. Um, so even though it's, it's actually kind of funny and outrageous to hear uh, the links that they went to to circumvent the fact that they found these incredibly intelligent people making incredibly valid uh, uh, arguments against the lockdown, they had to go to these links to pretend like these people were somehow rebellious, uh, that, they were anti that they were heterodox, right? Um, I mean, this sounds like the Salem witch trials, right? I mean, this is what we're getting towards, people. And I was so happy to have uh, Dr. Romanello come on the show and help me to parse this out because it really deserves special attention. This is really how people think in this academic universe where they're the hired sophists just justifying the the actions of the ruling elite, no matter to what end. They even had to continuously sort of imply, even though clearly they had been studying and multiple, multiple thousands of data sets of these conversations that have been going on on these social media sites about the lockdown and people who are skeptical of lockdown, they had to surmise that somehow these people must have been racist. Like, they could give us countless examples in the paper of how they actually use the scientific method to come to their conclusions, uh, but not one actual example of uh, racism or hate speech that seemed to be driving it. Instead, they sort of fabricated towards the end, this concept of a deep story that must be happening behind the scenes. Like, clearly, these heterodox individuals can't actually have the good of their community in mind, or else they would just be doing what they're told. And clearly, I mean, of course, no mention of the fact that the scientific hierarchy may be 
corrupted by the billions of dollars in pharmaceutical industry money, right? No, no, they would never do that. It must be you little peons of the plebeian class that aren't smart enough to use your critical thinking faculties to make your own healthcare decisions for yourself, to question the authority figures and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I've analyzed the raw data. I've made a graphic that really puts it all together, and it shows that the lockdowns are doing more harm than good. Can we have a public debate about this? No, no, sorry. There's a pandemic. We're in a state of emergency. You know, uh, you can't have your opinions. Now you just have to do what you're told. Shut up and do what you're told. And they hire these guys at MIT to construct these really complicated arguments, right? Sophistry, sophisms. To, uh, to try to justify what they're doing. Uh, and it just, it was just amazing to me. Some of the quotes are just phenomenal. I really recommend that people, um, people check it out. You know, check it out, read the entire document, um, come to your own conclusions about, uh, about exactly <laughs> what they were talking about. Try to make sense of it for yourself. But I think it's really pointing uh, to this very powerful trend in society uh, and in the academy to think that uh, this quote-unquote social hierarchy uh, and those at the top of a social hierarchy uh, are the ones that need to be in control. Uh, is This is patriarchy at its finest, right? Uh, it's not individuals making choices for themselves uh, that ultimately create a, a uh, self-perpetuating, self-defining system uh, called culture that we all participate in. Rather, it's a handful of uh, the elites at the top that uh, clearly know the truth, because they can hire the best sophists that can make the best arguments, and we all just have to shut up and do what we're told. So um, even though it's kind of funny to read uh, read this article and read some of these quotes, uh, there is actually this very serious uh, philosophy of uh, authoritarianism that really runs throughout. I think it runs throughout the entire uh, scientism issue this this concept this sci- this uh, f- this philosophy of science that says that the scientific method is not for those of the plebeian class but only for the experts at the top of the hierarchy uh, and how dare we engage in such critical thinking ourselves uh, and how dare we doubt uh, what the authorities at the top of the hierarchy may say um, so I hope you got a lot out of it uh, I was really happy to have the conversation with Dr. Romanello. Glad to have her back on. You all can check out her stuff at www.heartsoverhexagons.com. And as always, uh, I just want to fill you in. I'm going out of town next week, so uh, I won't be posting any more material, but I have been doing a lot. Got accepted onto the Rockform platform, which is a great place to get all my um, premium videos. So if you want to get the videos, the long-form videos, uh, go to www.rockfin.com, find my page, uh, and subscribe from my page. I'll get some credit for that. Uh, and then you also get access to all the premium stuff. The Last American Vagabond's up there. Whitney Webb stuff is up there. The Conscious Resistance is up there. A lot of people that I've interviewed uh, are putting content up on Rockfin uh, and a, a lot of other people that are producing really good uh, alternative media right now. So it's a great place, a great source of of information and a great place to help out uh, those of us that are doing this full time trying to uh, make ends meet. So uh, again, www.rockfin.com. And uh, as always, uh, you can uh, find my stuff on Facebook under Doug McKinty. 
I just started um, doing a lot of work with Take Action Canada. I'm really excited about this connection. Uh, and uh, George Roach and I uh, are continuing with the Psychology of Lockdown series, but also doing Separating Fact from Fiction now for uh, Take Action Canada. Uh, so you can find everything uh, posted up on www.theshiftnow.com. I've also got my uh, a new program, Beyond Politics, that I'm doing with Jason Roach. Um, excuse me, Jason Bosch. Uh, and um, we are really starting to dive into the differences between the left and the right and the in the paradigm, in the dialectic, kind of taking apart the Hegelian dialectic. I know a lot of us in the truth movement uh, are still, I mean, I come from a libertarian background. A lot of people come from a progressive background. Jason and I really want to find where we can come together to unify uh, as, a, as a, a united resistance against uh, this technocratic takeover. So thanks, everybody. Again, check it out, www.theshiftnow.com. And uh, I will be posting a few more things uh, before I go out of town this weekend. And then there will be a little bit of radio silence. And when I get back at the end of June, uh, I'm going to hit the ground running. And you're going to start seeing a lot, a lot of stuff coming out of Doug McKenty's studio. So very excited for the rest of the summer. Thanks again for checking this one out. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you, Dr. Romanello, for uh, participating once again in this one. And I'm sure we'll talk again uh, at a later date. Can't wait for that one. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, my next episode is going to be with Tim Ray from a UI Media Network. Uh, and so we're going to have kind of a big picture conversation. I always have fun talking with other content creators because uh, we get to talk about not only who our favorite interviews are, but actually our own point of view which doesn't get to happen uh, that often because we're always talking with somebody else. So, so that'll be a fun one, uh, and that'll be coming out as soon as I get back from my vacation. So you guys have a great week, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Take care.